You're listening to And what is poppin' everybody? You are listening to the Good Pop Culture Club episode 154. My name is Marvin Yue and joining me as always to talk about all the good pop that gets us through our days. For the last time in Asian Pacific American Heritage Month 2023, the once and future professional Asian American. Just Hi Marvin. I know it's about to hit midnight and I'm gonna poof turn into a kabocha squash. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank are you, you. Are you back or are you going back into hibernation after this? Um, you know, I wind up my my recent my current gig and then I guess I have some plans to you know fuck around, find out, and then <laughs> I guess on to the next. Very, very pirate life, the freelance life. Yeah. Not a freelancer, still enjoying her full time job. Our most professional coach editors, Han Wynn is also with us. Hey Han. Hey, hey. Yes. It's been a it's been a um a journey being so Asian. I know. Well, I mean <laughs> so very Asian. <laughs> we're emerging out of Asian month and going straight into Pride Month. So I'm sure you have lots of though lots of um LGBTQ themed articles in the pipe. I hope. I mean, we always do. That's the thing. <laughs> um I I, I and I of course don't have Asian things going on <laughs> for June. We we I do not stop uh there. I in fact, got my confirmation that I will be um, uh, interviewing Tao Yu for oh. um, Past Lives coming Monday. So that's in June, Ooh. well in June. And so that's something we will definitely be covering, hopefully, on this podcast. Yeah. Am I the only one who hasn't watched that film yet? I haven't seen it either, Marvin. Okay. So when it comes out, we can go watch it together. Yeah. I might watch it again. Let's go it's, watch some um, yeah. some longing and some yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> some longing just be aware there will be some longing i bet you i'm just gonna be like this is dumb just talk about <laughs> your feelings I'm, I'm very like sometimes the romance part is always like oh my god just talk about your feelings like fucking adults <laughs> like no one's holding a gun to your head just fucking do what you want but you know that's just me i mean we are talking about two I don't. It's a Korean trait. Is a Asian trait. Then merely do not be that way. Then where's the drama? That's fair. That's fair. It's like how all you know every rom com, rom drama would have been solved if merely everyone had functional communication skills. But as we know, they do not. It's just Mm -hmm. like those Star Wars memes, right? If only people were a little bit more smart, then they would have found out that Senator Palpatine was the Sith Lord. Um, if only people had like better foundations for their organizations, yeah, and better management. <laughs> if only they had so, let Anakin go and save his mom instead of the saying real. No so the real, the real villain is bad managers. It's a, yeah, the the, the the truest evil in our society is bureaucracy. Yeah, Agreed. that's that's pretty accurate all around. It's yeah, just like yeah, real and life. bad managers. Yeah, bad managers. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> not talking about anything current, no. Oh. Well. <laughs> not not getting in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the last week of Asian month. Um, technically, when you're listening to this, it's the first day of June. But as always, at the end of the month, we go over the latest Asian American entertainment news in a new segment we like to call, Do We Want This? But before we get to that, let's find out what pop culture has been getting us through this final week of APAM. Jess, I see you're watching the most APAM series of all. Yes, the most APAM series are of all, which is Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, which, of course, <laughs> is a prequel series about Queen Charlotte. Um, it is still fairly horny. Mm-hmm. It's doing a lot more to address some of the, I mean, I say a lot more because the original series really didn't deep dive into any of the racial stuff or the oddly pro-procreation stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, I think, does a more interesting angle into some of those topics so much. So it is a prequel, so it's set a few years uh, upon Queen Charlotte, who, of course, is played by a Black actress and is canonically Black in the film or in the show. Oh, I thought so you were in real a- life. I was like... Canonically. She's, also, she's also black in real life yes so so you know this is supposed to be like a more 
desegregated, not as racist British society, uh, partially because of marriage of Queen Charlotte. So it kind of tackles that. We see a young lady, Danbury. All the young actors are phenomenal. I think they really Mm -hmm. give really interesting insight and life to the older characters we see. I actually think they make me a lot more sympathetic and like like the older characters because I actually found Lady Danbury and the Queen in the original series to be a little harsh. Mm-hmm. But they're very charming in their younger forms. You kind of see the rough hand they're dealt with as women, as black women. Like like Lady Danbury has a really old, gross husband that she has to like have sex with. And like, you know, so they address some of those like more, you know, less romantic parts of a romantic fantasy drama set in the Regency period. The guy's hot. Uh, you know, he's a tormented. And honestly, this is just a really nice break after a whole month of doing, you know, rep reps, (laughs) rep reps, where like I'm having to talk a lot about specifically in the Asian American community. And I'm not saying that discourse and stuff can't is not part of this show or about Shondaland but like it's not my discussion to lead at this time you know what I mean so it's been really nice to kind of just turn my brain off and see hot people fuck each other (laughs) in the privacy of my own home and there's only six episodes the costumes Mm -hmm. are pretty there's some hilarious green screening where you can be like that's such a green screen Mm -hmm. um it's all very enjoyable I I I mean I think the tonal things that you said do somewhat better than the original Bridgerton series is because this one is actually from Shonda Rhimes um, as a creator, whereas Chris Van Dusen was the one who did Bridgerton. And so the depiction of the older black women as maybe harsher, spicier, you know, um, probably was because it's part of his doing, but also not knowing how to address race, <laughs> you know, that he's a, he's a gay white man, you know, so like yeah. he got he gets some of the gay stuff right. But, you know, yes. so this one, I think that's really cool. What I also like, which is a, a touch that definitely had to come from a woman, was they talk about older, hornier women, you know, um, after a certain age, if you're a widow, you might have needs. Um, they talk about gardens in full bloom. So uh, I like that. Lots of gray flower metaphors. Yes. But, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's also ironic because I think this one also has a really fun queer relationship. That's yes. Very central, like very explicitly queer. Mm-hmm. They're having sex scenes, you know, more than the original Bridgerton ever gets into. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's. Which is like weird, because you know, you were talking about how Chris Vendison was the showrunner of Bridgerton, but it's also such a like they're they're just being much more explicit about like why Julia Quinn, who's the original author, mm-hmm. I think they're contextualizing Julia Quinn's obsession mm-hmm. with having children a yes. lot better than Julia Quinn ever did. Like yeah. it makes sense in the context of Queen Charlotte to be obsessed with her children having children because mm-hmm. that's a literal British bloodlet monarchy mm-hmm. right and like the mm-hmm. only thing their job is to exist mm-hmm. ensure it survives and part of that is having legitimate heirs mm-hmm. so to me that makes a lot more sense than just some of the very creepy like undertones or overtones yeah in the bridgerton series and her children are delightfully degenerate yes they're so great and if <laughs> you don't this wonderful yeah. woman comes these people Yes, it's really funny. She has really she has fifteen shitty children, uh, which is really funny. And then, as you know, I don't think I can spoil her historical mm-hmm. events, but essentially, you know, Queen Victoria, like like Victorian era Queen Victoria, becomes like the only legitimate heir, and that's how we like kind of arrive to this. I think Queen Victoria is maybe more likely where folks like like regular folks kind of start understanding nobility and like historical drama and historical stuff and so that's kind of we are two generations removed from queen victoria mm-hmm. um of course me being the weird freakish anglophile i was like oh yeah i knew this i know about charlotte of brunswick and <laughs> caroline in brunswick um but it's yeah it, it's just really it's it's fun enough it's dumb in a fun way and it's attractive people being attractive and wearing attractive costumes and we see some butts. Mm -hmm. So that's 
That's two thumbs up for me. <laughs> now, I know we're not supposed to think too hard about the world building in this show. Um, but it always does, like, I can't help it. I have that brain rot. Um, and I just always think about the fact that this isn't like one of those like representative casting things. Like they actually have like an in world lore reason why this England is more diverse. And that mm-hmm. always kind of, I don't know if you think too hard about it, it's like, Oh, so the black people all decided to become just like the white people when they gain power. Well, uh, you need to watch this series to kind of see how they deal with it. Um, because they do address the way that they approach stuff. Um, yeah, it is a fantasy, you know, at yeah. a certain time, it's like we're not because that could be its own show, right? <laughs> the whole integration, like like fa- fan fiction, timeline, divergent integration of historical England. Um, but, you know, I will it gives us really fun actors. It really gives us really <laughs> amazing talent like, you know, Simone Ashley and mm-hmm. I mean, very beautiful. I won't say he's talented, but man, very beautiful people <laughs> like Jean Rene Page. Yeah, you know he's he's so better. I'll he's be, better in Dungeons and Dragons. I like. He's him very yeah, and you know, white people have been getting to play dress up and be moderately okay, but good looking. So I'm like, you know what? I'm yeah. gonna call this a win. Guess, we don't want to do like a. Do you want to do like the sad like, like I, the sad like? I like, mean, I guess for me, it's more. I would have rather it just been not explained like these are just like people of color playing roles that have always well, been played by white people as opposed to like well there's a story behind why well that was the main complaint about bridgerton original og bridgerton because a they did bake it into the story and so i you know the the problem was since they baked into the story then not addressing it was weird so what they could have done was just done their casting and not explained it um, but because they have baked into the story, that's why Queen Charlotte, I think, makes it better. Because since they didn't address it really well, they had to here. Um, so I guess so, again, yeah. it goes back to that original showrunner and his. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's his problem. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> I remember him talking to me and he was like, I call it color conscious casting. And then in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, but how conscious were you about what that meant? And and I didn't say that because honestly, I don't know if he would have answered it well um, <laughs> or, or at all. And, you know, I'm de- I'm kind of tired of getting empty answers um, mm. because I don't I don't publish those. Like, I don't know how many Q&A's I edit where I was just like, we can just cut this whole thing out, <laughs> you know, because it's uh, we don't need them just basically praising everyone around them, you know, that type of stuff. So it's kind of like, yeah, you get what you get in an interview, but you also don't you want a compelling story. So if they're not going to, like, give you anything, it's I, I would rather publish something else. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm glad that I'm glad it's good. I've heard it's good. I've heard people who, even people who did not enjoy maybe the second season, really enjoyed this one. We get a lot of spinoffs these days, like Game of Thrones, uh, to all the boys loved before, and they don't always hit. And it sounds like this is one of those that actually, like, I guess because of the people behind it, is trying to do something or does it well. Yeah. Happy for you guys. You romance Thanks, fans. Marvin. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> All right. Uh, Han, what's popping with you? Uh, as we were talking about the transition from Asian month to Pride month, um, we get something that straddles both of those things. And that is the new series XO Kitty. It is the rom-com series spinoff of the To All the Boys I've Loved Before movie series. Um, it is actually uh, written and created um, she is a producer on this too, uh, by Jenny Han, and it is kind of the um, I, sort of the love child between American uh, t- rom coms and K dramas. Um, there are definitely some nods to K dramas, but it is super American because, as I have mentioned before, you know, there's some queer storylines. There's not just one, not just two, but three major queer storylines, um, and for a a series that has, I don't know is it 10 episodes and they're 30 minutes each or whatever? It's really short. Um, That's just half of the romantic storylines in this. There's just like, there's so many stories. It's really packed in. Um, So I think what I liked about it is that 
because well, from what you can you can sort of tell, there's a lot of storylines going on um, in a short amount of time. So that means the depth isn't always there, but there's a lot of really good you know sort of conversations being had. There's some really genuinely funny lines, um, and it's it, it is definitely a ridiculous teen fantasy because number one you get this teenager who's just like i want to go to korea and i landed a a scholarship at the school where my mom went and dad's like okay fine have fun you know (laughs) it's just like um i'm not gonna even fly with you on the plane you're going unchaperoned it's a white dad so that yeah, might be yeah, how yeah. they act. I don't know. I don't have a white dad. I was set on planes by myself. <laughs> I don't know. At, at 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 that young, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but also <laughs> to another country to live for six months. That's, oh, I didn't think I sent to Taiwan to live for a couple months. Where she's was, never like, been before and she doesn't speak the language. Like, there's a lot going on there. That's a lot of faith, right? Um. So anyway. What I'm that's hearing just, is Han had very responsible parents who did not yeah, endanger versus her. Like, versus parents were like, no, you'll be fine. Bye. <laughs> anyway, so it's it's a ridiculous fantasy in that, like, even that aside, um, the fact that Kitty gets to uh, low-key hide out in the boys' dorm for the whole series. That is not a spoiler, by the way. <laughs> you just... Um, and... Uh, lives basically with them um there's a lot of else going on that means also the fashions are uh ultra ridiculous when it comes to teen fashions because they would not get away with that especially in korea um south korea (laughs) um because definitely there's a uh, a little bit more like they wouldn't get away with it especially as a teen girl like if you're a pop idol sure but not you know a girl going to school she would have to wear a uniform probably for stuff. And I think she does for some of it. Anyway, um, but yeah, there's there when I talk about just how fun it is, my favorite character, he's also very cute. He's also not a teenager in real life, so I can say that. Okay. Um, Thank you for clarifying. I think he's 27. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the character's name is Mino. Um, he is a South Korean uh character who speaks with like a British accent. Um, English with a British accent and um, he's hilarious because he's constantly talking about his skincare routine um, and he he's you know ultra full of himself but he's very charming uh, so and he's one of the uh, possible love triangle people um, that you will see or love quadrangles or whatever you want to call it uh, there's also a Korean adoptee story, which is not the usual one you would see in K-dramas, because usually in K-dramas, they speak fluent Korean, <laughs> you know, and uh, we just want to uh, reintegrate into Korean society. Um, this guy is from Australia, and so is the actor. Um, and so there's that. There's um, It is of the heightened sort of drama that you get from K-dramas, but in a rom-com packaging. So the older Korean um, people, such as... Uh, the lady from Lost is in there as a mom. Um, so you get some plot lines there too, because as we know from K dramas, it is not, you are not yourself alone. It is always based upon like who your parents are or what sort of traumas came from your past. Um, so yeah, I, I recommend it. It's a good, fun, fast watch. Um, what I think is interesting is I have seen mixed reactions, especially from people who love K dramas, because I was just like, this is not a K drama, people. Um, there is, Definitely some sex going on. There's a lot. There's some double entendres. There is a lot. Well, as I said, three queer stories. So, um, yeah, there. this like steps over the line for some people who like the very sanitized world of K-dramas and, and romance. Those people don't sound like a lot of fun, though. No, they're not. <laughs> this show isn't for them. Um, yeah, I mean, I have not. I know it's Asian month, but I have not watched any of the Asian month releases. I have not watched American Born Chinese or Excel Kitty. I'm like way behind, guys. You even programming independent shit, Marvin. It's fine. We can watch <laughs> it after Asian month. Yeah, I mean, I'm behind on American Born Chinese, but that also just came out semi more yeah. recently. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad that you liked um, Exo Kitty because I remember, I think all of us are collectively a little down on the Tell the Boys sequels, right? For the most part. Oh my God. First movie was great. Second was very meh. And then third one kind of brought it together, but still wasn't wonderful. Because they took it away from a woman. Yes. The director who was a woman who made it 
amazing the first time around. So, yeah. um, but I think Jenny Han is taking a little bit more control of her properties. Like Summer I Turned Pretty, I think the series was better than the books. Um, and so modernized it. Also, that felt like something that you wrote as, you know, as a teenager. <laughs> like There's a lot of wish fulfillment there um, and weird stuff going on. But um, I am yeah, finding myself excited it. for the next season, if only to continue the brother storyline. Because I have it's so I weird. do not care about the main love triangle at all in that show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't <laughs> care. Um because I don't want either of those guys. But the brother's cool. So yeah, we'll see what yeah. that... And that wasn't in, in the book like that anyway. So. <laughs> All right. Um, Marvin, how are you doing? What's new? <laughs> what's popping? So what's popping for me is, I guess I've been trying to play video games, um, which, you know, as an adult with responsibilities is getting harder and harder. And I don't know if I've seen that um, the commercial that, they, that Nintendo released um, right before the release of Tears of the Kingdom involving the um, the sad middle-aged white man. Oh, no. So they released like this. Like, it's like a five-minute long, essentially a short film that follows this like sad-looking middle manager white dude going home on a bus. You know, he goes home. His, I think, Asian wife kisses him, makes him dinner. And then he sits down and puts in Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, and the life goes back into his eyes. He starts feeling joy again as he's playing this game. And then the next day, he's bringing the Switch with him to work. And he's, like, happy again. And that's kind of... I think that pretty much captures what it feels like to play video games these days as an adult. Is you come home from your soul-sucking job for, like, an hour of, like, rekindling your youth. I- I'm sorry. All I'm hearing is man hates his family. <laughs> um his devoted wife and children and wants to run away into Hyrule. No, there were no children in the film. So I, at the very least, he did not procreate. But um, that is to say, I've been playing Zelda. In case people don't know, it's like the biggest game right now because, mm-hmm. as always, Zelda is an event. And it's a direct sequel to Breath of the Wild, which was one of the early games for the Switch. Mm-hmm. It's an open-world Zelda game. You can go anywhere, um, climb stuff. And like all Zelda games have the same overall quest. You're going to save the princess from the evil thing. And what set Breath of the Wild apart from other games was that it offered you a lot of freedom. Just like it's open world. You can go in any direction, find things to do, find shrines to solve and fight bosses and dungeons. And so Tears of the Kingdom expands on that, makes it bigger. Now you have like way more places to um, to explore and you get certain powers this time around that essentially breaks the game if you know how to use them. Like you can stick any two things together, add a rocket to it and turn it into like anything. Um, so, you know, if you look online, you can see people building cars, giant robots, um, Rocket boards. I heard people were building like Gundams. Yeah. (laughs) So what I've been finding is much like the original Breath of the Wild, I've put in maybe like at this point eight hours into the game. I have not advanced the story much at all. All I want to do is just climb mountains. There's a um, there's a mechanic where you unlock these towers that open up the map for you, but these towers are all located in like hard to get places you have to figure out how to climb this mountain to get up to the tower in order to activate the map and i just spent my entire time trying to open up these towers and so instead of going to save the princess i'm just climbing mountains figuring how's the best way to climb this mountain because i'm too weak to fight anybody all of these enemies in these areas are one-shotting me so i have to avoid fighting find the best way to climb up a mountain and activate the tower and what i've been essentially doing is teleporting to one of the sky islands building myself a rocket sled and just going as far as as far as i can in one direction before jumping off and hopefully getting to my destination and Ooh. yeah that's been how i've been playing just effing around you know i think that's what the builders of this game wanted because why else would they let you do that and are you happy marvin I'm having a lot of fun and it's wild because like Nintendo games tend to be very curated experience, right? They're, Nintendo mm-hmm. has always been known for making tight gameplay experiences. And so to have this game kind of give you the tools to do whatever you want, it's kind of amazing, to be honest. 
that's kind of incredible. Like just thinking on the back end how they had to program like yeah. every single possibility gives me like hives. <laughs> So good on them for making that happen. Um, I've been watching my husband play it and he seems he's very similar to you. Has no idea what's going on. Doesn't know how to build anything. Climbs a lot. Um, but he, lo- you know, looks like it's a really fun time. Oh, I know how to build things. I built myself some rising platforms, make some boats. Um, next time we hang out, we'll, we'll, we'll exchange notes. I'll let him know my, my basics of, I mean, I'm no engineer. But I did create a rocket slide. Hmm. Yes, please. <laughs> so yeah, this is probably a game that will keep me busy for uh, a good long while, which is great because it's on the Switch, which means I can play on planes when I go oh, places. Oh, that's right. That's right. Very excited about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, before we get to do we want this, we need to check in with Top Chef um, season 20, um, World All-Star season. Um this past week was the final challenge in London. We're finally getting out of London um, with our final four. And and their final challenge in England was, I didn't really like it. I don't know how you guys felt. I felt like it, they ended on like a, a weird note. I didn't mind it, um, but I do have things to say about it. So, um. <laughs> But I guess we start with the quick fire. Do you guys remember what the quick fire was? Uh, we had to make jelly. A jelly, right, the yeah. jelly challenge, which just seems mean. It was all right, you know. Um, I, it was funny because I was like, "Oh, they got to use mold." Buddha's gonna like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. he was like, he was like so happy, creaming like in his pants. Both of these challenges were like tailor made for mm-hmm. Buddha's skill set to the point where it's almost not fair. Well, it was also, but that can always go two both yeah. ways, right? Like that's also it was also supposed to be Tom German Tom's skill set and. We don't know what happened. Spoiler. We know what happened there. Um, but I, I agree. I thought it was kind of a weird challenge. Maybe not the best. Because um, I didn't particularly think any of the food looked that appetizing. Yeah. So I have a, a beef when it comes to the elimination challenge. I actually think the challenge is fine. But I think it was weird that so few of the chefs actually knew what it meant. Uh, which is the uh, trompe l'oeil challenge which is fool the eye and i feel like anyone who's watched food competition shows have seen this if you've seen is it cake you've seen i was thinking that this is essentially the is it cake challenge yeah so basically for those who don't know it is creating food that doesn't look like what it tastes like so you can make it look like other food which is what buddha did or you can make it look like an object which is what gabri did um, but you don't make it taste like what it's suppo- what it looks like, which is what Tom did wrong. He basically made like an impossible burger, right? Which is using <laughs> using um, alternate ingredients to make something that look li- that tasted like what it looked like. He made a fake caviar that tasted fishy. So I was just like, uh, dude, you totally didn't get it. The memo here, and um, and I have to say, uh, same when it came to um, Ali. He basically created sort of like a, a cute gardenscape, you know, but no one thought that his little turtle, they were eating a turtle. It was very clearly, you know, a turtle made out of food. Right. Um, and uh, when it came to uh, Sarah, her tamale that turned into a matzo ball soup. But I was like, that was barely not even pretending. No one even knew it was tamale, first of all. So it didn't even look like the thing she wanted it to look like and then you had to still unwrap it and make thing you know do assembly for it and i was like this doesn't make sense at all so only two people understood the assignment and so i felt like even though cabris did not look good like when you're talking about unappetizing i was like um but at least they followed the directions and i think that's why that he had to go through um so i don't know if they just needed to explain it better but I felt like if you're a chef on a competition show of the level of Top Chef, you have one of these in the back pocket. Just kind of like you have a few dessert um, uh, recipes in your back pocket because you know you're going to be stretched. So I don't know. Like, I don't know if th- you have an illusion dish in your back pocket, though. That seems like a pretty like I, that. that that's so. not a former like they've done molecular gastronomy challenges before, but they've never had to like because essentially it's also a decoration challenge, which is not it, in a lot of their it, wheelhouses. It, it right? could be, but like, you know, people have done, what's it called? Um, well, 
I mean, you this comes through like every now and then over your feed, which is someone makes like a kitty litter cake where it looks like you're eating kitty litter. Terrible. And like, Absolutely fake, terrible. Fake poop. But that's but, tomboy, you know? And so I was just like... But know. I'm just like, is any of that pleasant to eat? Like, even Buddha's thing where everyone was like, wow, amazing. I'm like, you made just a bunch of, like, little weird <laughs> bites that, to me, didn't sound like a full meal or dish. Yeah. And I'm just like, what is the point? Is this the best way to showcase, like, food and, like... Their cooking voice and like I think I think it's creativity and technicality skill. Technical skills and creativity is where what it tests, I think. But it I mean, did have I to feel taste like, good. I mean, I feel like this challenge it's one of those challenges where the concept overpowered everything else. Um, because like, you know, during the judging too, Tom, like Judge Tom was definitely like rules lawyering everything, right? Like, does this follow the challenge? And I feel like it bogged everything down. Like, obviously there were chefs that were challenged by this because they couldn't conceptualize it. And, you know, Han and I both met one of the producers and she explained that they do sit the chefs down, explain the rules to them. Mm -hmm. So this is um, either they misinterpret the rules or they couldn't think of anything illusiony, so they just went with interpretation instead. Yeah, and I feel like maybe if they had more time, because this is one of those um quick those are this is one of the elimination challenges that was like announced. And then at least from the edit, they're like, we're going to shop right away, as opposed to like, you know, we're gonna you're gonna spend a day doing something about it or like learning about it. And yeah. then it really seems like ch- Buddha at least has done something like this before. It seems like he oh, knew of course exactly he would. He, of course, yeah. he would have done something <laughs> like this. But it's just like in like this challenge in lieu of everything else. Like I feel like this season so far, I miss the inspired by another art form challenge. Right? Like sometimes they get you, and like that's such a wild thing to be in England and not do like a literary challenge, mm-hmm. and yeah. be like here are like here are like famous English novels like where they've contributed so much like through eras like do a do a dish based on one of these, which worked really well in the Boston season. And they've done that with like paintings and art and different stuff. And what I was like, would be a dish inspired by Rudyard Kipling? Just the heart of a, just, just, just a lot. What's the most colonial thing you can think <laughs> yes. of? I mean, curry, curry, right? Yeah. Yes. Bastardized curry. Yes. But yeah, yeah, it's, I get like, I get why Tom went home. I'm glad Tom went home. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I kind of wish it was because he made, I mean, he did make something not appetizing, but yeah, it didn't sound, it didn't sound good either. Yeah. Um, I will add a bonus go Asian moment is Jeremy Chan, who was the guest judge. Not only is he hot, but just like he could say anything. <laughs> if he just would read the menu for the full half hour, I would have been, or how, full hour, I would have been very happy. Just very just, hot yeah. seems so uncomfortable in front of the camera and so sad which i think adds to the hotness to yes. be fair yes i was just like it's fine you know you just talk out your feelings um but yeah he, he was just like very hot and his voice that was very little hot. deep voice coming from that little body oh of his oh my god it was ridiculous so yes <laughs> the, the acts and then the accent just over the top like too much too much yeah yeah so. Go Asian indeed. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yes. Well, we still have two Asians going into the final. Um, we have Buddha Ali joining Sarah and Gabri. Actually, like, yeah, I, I, I have to apologize because I, for some reason, I convinced myself that it was Amar and Charvel going to the final round of Last Wish Chef's for, Kitchen. Wishful thinking when it comes to Charvel. Yeah. Sarah and Charvel. And mm-hmm. I did hope it was Charvel because he did like win five straight to get there. But yeah. Yeah. He's also another Asian. So mm-hmm. yeah. Well, Excited for this week's um, semifinals in Paris. Um, wonder what they're going to do. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll check in again next week to see who's going into the finals. We're at least guaranteed one Asian, which is great. Hopefully two. We'll see. Um, but uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're talking about the latest Asian American entertainment news uh, for APAM 2023. Stick around. Hello, I'm Phil Yu, and I'm the host of All the Asians on Star Trek, the podcast in which I interview all the Asians on Star Trek. 
I'm talking to actors, writers, directors, stunt people, background extras. You know, all the Asians on Star Trek. Find out more at alltheasiansonstartrek.com. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Live long and prosper. And welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. It is the end of the month, which means it's time to check out the latest Asian American entertainment news in a segment we like to call Do We Want This? Uh, where we each go around and share a couple stories and ask ourselves if we want this. Um, Jess, why don't you give us our first story for our APAM edition? All right. This first one, warning you, kind of a cow bummer, but a big article dropped today uh, from Maureen Ryan, who maybe more commonly known as Mo Ryan, who has done a lot of great reporting about Hollywood, the Me Too movement, um, you know, power dynamics, BLM movement, just the general like wave of attempted anti-racism <laughs> and, and progressive Hollywood. And as well, this is an excerpt from her new book, Burn It Down. And it goes deep into the toxic workplace environment, specifically in the writer's room of lost which i don't know if everyone is old enough to remember but lost was a big fucking deal like lost is still a big fucking deal that was really the i think a pivot point of tv and how tv started become like this prestige amazing thing it was the first like serial like big time serial show right like before then i think it's i think it's the first like successful version of what we would now call like prestige TV. And I think it sets the ground for a lot of this prestige TV and like high concept things. You know, a lot of the stars, a lot of the actors in it had some, I mean, right after had or during had some pretty big star power. I think actually like, like 10 years, 10, 15 years down the line, they maybe didn't live up to, not all of them quite lived up to that. Uh, but you know, this is where we get Daniel Day Kim and it yeah uncovers mainly focuses on the co-show runner da- Damon Lindelof who recently I as I've been talking about did a I'm the good white guy tour when mm. promoting and winning and accepting all the awards for the Watchmen, Watchmen uh, the the HBO series with Regina King so yes I mean it's a weird way how should we frame it do we want this do we want maybe two parter. Do we want toxic work environments, racist toxic work environments in Hollywood writers' rooms? And do we want more reporting like this? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not necessarily going to recuse myself, but I will say that I know Mo. Uh, and I, she's been doing fantastic investigative work for a long time. And usually it's the stuff that has created change. Uh, one of her reports in the past showed how very white and male the directors were in tv and that uh prompted fx to uh to make an effort to make sure at least there were more women and more people of color um behind the cameras so that was great uh so i'm looking forward to getting my own copy of burn it down and i hate the fact that she has to do this and that it keeps uncovering this sort of shit but at the same time i'm glad it's out there so yeah, because I do think I, I also disclaimer, I know Mo uh, through like acquaintance level through work. I've actually been interviewed by her. She's great. And yeah. she's she's a fantastic writer, reporter. I think she does a lot of due diligence. And I mean, I will say like she is from my experience, she does seem to be like a homie. Um, and it's just it's for me, it's always amazing who she gets to go on record mm-hmm. and how explicit they are about their stories about like what was what the terrible things that were going on which i think is needed Mm -hmm. because i think we all know that this happens i don't think as marvin and i we were talking like this isn't necessarily surprising but to be able to cite like actual stories statistics and an article i kind of want her whole book to just be eventually articled out because let's be real like Hollywood execs don't read books. <laughs> they don't read books. They're not going to adapt. So it's it's much more. I think the communication pathways are much easier when it's just like an article on Vanity Fair. 
what what what's going to happen is someone will do a detailed list of the highlights from the book, I think. <laughs> That's when. Love that. Yes. Love that. It's a spawn of million TikToks. It's fine. It's how we disseminate information now. Um, yeah, I. To answer your two-parter, I want more reporting like this because it's only the tip of the iceberg, right? Like. This types of these types of things that happen behind closed door has been an open secret, but only amongst like people connected to industry. Like, like the general public never even hears about this. Like, um, like I've known that the lost room was kind of a toxic place for a long time in regards to like a very specific story involving um, Daniel Day Kim's character, and so you know it wasn't surprising, but. It was surprising that this story broke and got out there and is in like a mainstream publication. Um, but it's a good thing. Um, I do not want toxic work environments. I never want toxic work environments. As people, all three of us who have been in toxic work environments, it's not a good place to be. Not a lot of fun. It's also just like this element of Lost, again, is an older show. It does feel a little like... You know how we talk about or we make movies about historical periods to like examine our contemporary cultures. This article gives me that gives me that vibe. I'm like, oh yeah, it's happened at loss. It's still happening today. Um, you know, Damon Lindelof is still very powerful and again just did a whole campaign about how he did things quote unquote right. Um and and it is kind of funny to see how like they were pushing these part of the article talks about how they were really pushing the three main white leads, you know, in, in lieu of all this other really talented actors of color and writers of color and being like very racist about it. And I'm like, what did that get us? Like, where is, aren't they all trash now? <laughs> like, where are all these people? Harold, per Harold Pirino, mm -hmm. who was like the only black actor on this cast in this ensemble class, along with the son, they were like the only two black characters on the show. He's still working. He's making money. He, I just saw him in Last Man Holiday, the series. Great actor. You know, still got a career. Um, Daniel did Kim producing shit. What happened? Evangeline Linney, anti-vaxxer in Quantum Mania? I mean, I guess she's getting paid, but mm -hmm. isn't the other guy just like been like riddled with DV charges? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's been a whole sort of mess when it came to Lost, but that also comes when it you get a really huge ensemble that hit like really popular quickly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, and I get it. Like, it's harder to speak out what as it's happening because, like, a lot of writers like they rely on the show to like to live, right? Like, it's harder to speak out against something while you're still working on it. So, with some time and distance and time yeah. to kind of develop your careers, you kind of put yourself on a more, you know, um, some more some more stable ground because you know writers' rooms are full of like when if you're like just a staff writer, right? If you're just like a low level writer, like you are like you don't have a lot of power at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, props to the writers. Melinda Sue Taylor is you know spoke speaking on the record about this, and she's been doing a lot, not only speaking on writers' strike stuff, but she is a showrunner, right? So she has that liberty. She has a little more power now to say it. Um, but I'm just saying, like, it's it's not that far away. And I hope people realize that, like, this is still an ongoing issue. It's not just, like, a time capsule piece about loss. Like, a lot of these writers are still very active and powerful in the industry. Lindelof. Um, so we should be examining kind of what their track record has been recently. And maybe we should take chances on other people now. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said about, like, obviously Lindelof wants to, like, hopefully he learned from his experience, which is what has led him to do his, you know, I'm doing it right. But that doesn't erase what happened. You know, he still fostered a very toxic environment. And like any institution or organization, toxicity breeds toxicity, right? There, there's probably people who came out of that writer's room taking those lessons and applying to their own writer's rooms when they get the chance. And we don't want that at all. Yeah, no. Uh... <laughs> So, yes, more reporting. Mm -hmm. Yes, no to toxic work environments. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, Han, what's our next story? Uh, so we don't need to go deep into this, but basically it's a story about how uh, Joel Kim Booster, when he was at the Glad Media Awards, gave a shout out to 
um, the WGA strike, saying that labor issues are queer issues in his acceptance speech. Um, you know, this is basically a sneaky way to talk about the strike again for me. Um, I'm really pro-union. Pro, we're all pro-strike. I think there's no, you know, hidden, like, we're, we've been open about that here. But I, the thing is, the strike is ongoing, and it's been affecting a lot of things, including what shows are, you know, getting canceled. Uh, whereas previously, maybe like ratings or things like that might have been at play. We've also noticed that a lot of shows getting canceled, you know, have um, uh, predominantly, you know, people of color behind and in front of the camera, you know, stuff like that. So writers also have a huge impact when it comes to representation <laughs> uh which is why he was talking about queer issues clearly um we also it, it it's there have been some queer storyline type narratives that we've seen being canceled in other places too so um that's concerning um the whole rise of uh zaslav um who was at discovery buying out HBO and that's why you have a streaming service now called Max um, is a big deal and why certain things have been canceled that's also concerning uh, so yeah I'm just basically you know I'm grateful for the actors and other people who have power such as Colin Farrell who have been going out you know speaking up but also on the picket lines um, and keeping the conversation alive because you know what there's also a looming actor strike. So we'll see. <laughs> and the director's Yeah. One. I mean, um, I was looking it up. The last time there was a simultaneous strike was 1960 when the writers and actors um, both were striking. Um, if it, that if either of these things come to pass with a simultaneous strike, that's going to be very rough also for me as a journalist um, because a lot of interviews that we have I normally do because I talk to a lot of showrunners and writers because, of course, they control the storylines and they can answer your question better than sometimes an actor who just has a script. Um, yeah, a, a lot of those had to be canceled because I couldn't do them. So we've been having to be creative about how we get these answers or just writing what we think, you know, happened. Um, some people have been scabs. Don't support them if possible. Uh, <laughs> um <clears throat> Sam Levinson, the idol. But um, yeah, so it's, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the idol also premieres Sunday. So I'm sure we're going to win fortune. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about what to do there because um, that's going to be part of the conversation. So I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, so do we want, I guess, this, which I don't know if I'm asking about the actors speaking out and support. I mean, if you're asking for do we want solidarity, then yes. Yes. Yes, we Be- do want solidarity. <laughs> and we want more recognition of intersectionality mm-hmm. of our struggles. So, Thank yes. You. And good on Joe Kim Booster for using that platform. Um, do we want strikes? No. But, you know, we want the corporations to pay the workers a fair amount. Yeah. And to stop creating more apps because I am so fucking tired. Well, essentially, the merger did merge two apps together. But now we lost one app that I use and gained one that I'm only going to half use. Oh, no. Although the new Max does have 44 seasons of Diners, Rivers, and Dives. Just it for does. You. And Good Eats. So that's fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would have also, you know, but... I would also like writers to be paid fairly and actors to be paired fairly and directors. And mm-hmm. for, you know, there was that little snap. Did you, apparently they like were saying they were crediting the directors and showrunners as creators. Creator this is how everyone's of- been influencer pilled because now everyone's just a creator. Yeah. that So the problem with that is the word creator is a specific role in television. I've heard I've I've had a lot of like younger writers try to use the word creator as in someone who is creative and I'm like no 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 you no. cannot use you that. gotta <laughs> use the official titles the official guild definitions they mean mm-hmm. very certain things um, it's a very antiquated like it's an old school apprentice like words mean very specific things mm-hmm. and you get paid a very specific amount so yes but 
it's fine. <laughs> I don't don't get me into an old person rant about kids these days. We can move on. <laughs> Better you than me. Uh, anyway, words used to mean things, huh? <laughs> As an editor, I agree. Sadly. Yeah, I mean, anyway. yeah, and I guess that leads into my first story, which is. <laughs> Kung Fu, the CW series, has been canceled. Um, do we want Same this? with the company you keep. Oh, that too. I know. Uh, no, we don't no, want this. No. I, I as two more Asian families off screen. Yeah, I was I was actually catching up on the company you keep when I got the news and I was like, oh. Oh, damn it, I? right? I yeah. didn't even start. And I know we were supposed to start yeah. and like I figured it was a network show, so we had like whatever many weeks to catch up. And um, so I was like, oh, the things that are binges we can do now. And then like 16 weeks down the line, we can, you know, do the company you keep or whatever. And nope. Yeah, uh, you would think that. But alas, the CW is not even the Zaslav company, right? Who owns CW? I mean, it is Warner. Um, oh. Part of. But no, you're right. The CW has been doing totally different things for a while. Um, they got they have gotten rid of almost all of their superhero stuff. The Flash just ended, and even though Kung Fu is not superhero, it is of that genre, um, sort of falling in with the action stars. So, what the CW is now is anyone's guess. It used to be a place that had some pretty good content for women, which was Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex Girlfriend. That those two fell by the wayside. It was. And then it became sort of like a supernatural slash superhero space, which is fine. Um, but now I'm not quite sure what it is, except for a place where Penn and Teller, you know, do stuff. We get Canadian <laughs> shows on there occasionally. Um, yeah, I'm very confused about what yeah. the CW is. And I used I to mean, love that. I mean, I feel bad because I fell off of Kung Fu after like yeah, two thirds away through the first season, which... Did I cause this? Did I cause no. Kung Fu to be canceled? No, Marvin. No, Marvin. No. The, the Nielsen is not tracking your data. Right. You're okay. You need a Nielsen box. But still. Okay. So we, we can go back to blaming the white people. then. Yeah. Yeah. We can. And, you know, I mean, I'm glad it has lasted as long as it did. But it is sad. I don't want yeah. this. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned that the CW is bringing Canadian programming, which I guess that's what C stands for now is Canadian yeah. Warner, Canadian, Canadian what? Um, and one of the things, and one one of the shows that they are bringing in is Run the Burbs, um, the Andrew Fung um, star I gotta dramedy. Watch it. <laughs> yeah, I got to check um, that out, I guess. <laughs> yeah, which is, I'm actually like, you know, I'm sad about Kung Fu, but I'm glad that we finally have a way to legally watch this show. Because yes, uh, yes. much like Kim's yes. Convenience, it took a while for it to come over. I think. Kim's Convenience came over through Netflix, right? Yeah, it did. So I, I was actually hoping for, you know, like a main streamer. But if this is what the CW can bring me, okay, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm excited about that. Um, but bummed about Kung Fu. Um, especially since, you know, one of our mutual friends, Linda, is a writer on that show. So yeah. you know, hopefully she'll be aligned on her feet as well. I mean, three seasons. That's not that's not too shabby, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Jess, what's your next story? Okay, a little happier. Um, Delhi Boys is a, a comedy pilot has been picked up to series at Hulu. So it stars Asif Ali of WandaVision fame, Sagar Shik of um, Ms. Marvel, Ali Fuller, Porna Jagannathan. I'm terrible at names, sorry. Um, and it has some other fun folks involved, like Nisha Ganantra, who was going to be the EP and direct the pilots. Um, and it looks like they have a pretty and, and it was created and we mean this in the true sense created as and he developed the story and you know was writing it by Abdullah Saeed so it's gonna be half hour 10 episode series and it's about a two brother two Pakistani brothers who um, after their convenience store magnet father suddenly dies have to reckon with his secret life of crime and take up his mantle do we want this yeah, that sounds amazing. I was on board for like Pakistani American succession, but this sounds like mm -hmm. even this. But now it's crime. Yeah, it's crime and it's comedy. Um, I think Asif Ali is very talented. If you've never seen a stand up, I think I don't think he got to do his full Asif 
Aliness on WandaVision. Uh, he's he's like the he's Vision's co-worker that's like stuck in the loop thing. The little brown guy. Um, and he was really funny on Wrecked. Uh, he just has like very manic energy. Like his comedic persona has like very manic energy. And then Sagar's kind of the opposite, like very chill, very cool, very handsome. Not that Asif isn't handsome. Um, and their height difference is very funny. So I'm very excited to see them play brothers. Um it I love a comedy. I love 30 minute investments. So I am a bit, and Nisha Ganantra, of course, is underrated in my opinion. Uh, as a director, she did she's Canadian, speaking of Canadian, and she did um High Note, Late Night, which I thoroughly enjoyed. One of the first queer South Asian rom-coms, Chutney Popcorn in 1999. Just fucking mm-hmm. fucking beast. Love her. Uh, and she's done stuff on also things like Transparent and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So got the chops. Very excited. Yeah. And if you want to watch Asaf Ali in something like crime adjacent, check out Chi and T, which is a new Chopra film that came out in 2016 where he gets Ooh. to play like the fell son of like a crime boss. <laughs> yeah, so I, that's, maybe that's what I'm imagining. That's what his character will be like. But he's completely unhinged in that. And it's very, very funny. Like, does a lot of cocaine in that um, movie. Uh, and I hope we get some fun version of that. And kind of upending the whole convenience store story, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm down for it. I <laughs> love it. I love a comedy. Yeah. With crime. We love a comedy. With crime. All right. Han, what's what's your next story? Um, so yeah, this might be kind of random. I don't always usually talk about stuff that comes out of festivals, but this was uh, came out of uh, Cannes Film Festival. And the reason why I think it was noteworthy is that it's not just one, but two Vietnamese directors got a lot of attention. Um, the first one I will mention is uh, Tran Eng Hung. He is a Vietnamese director, but he did a French film. <laughs> so he's not representing Vietnam per se. Um, and it, there are a couple titles for this movie. One is uh, The Po of Phu, which many people still claim is the origins of pho. Um, <laughs> there's even a restaurant called pho um, near me, spelled F-E-U, which is um, like pot on fire, basically, in French. Um, there might be a few commonalities about the broth in each, but I don't necessarily think they're similar. Maybe the French stole it from the Vietnamese as they stole everything. Well, I mean, I don't know. So I, I, I'm not going to say it's definitely not, but I'm just giving you some of the background. Anyway, um, but the movie itself is about, um, uh, it's based on a book from a French author. And it's uh, The Passion of the French gourmet or epicure so it's a romance between um a chef juliette bonoche who we love and uh a gourmet so it's basically french people <laughs> so, <laughs> and as anything that deals with french people and vietnamese there's an interesting relationship there so i'm i'm kind of curious about what he does with it um the other one though is more vietnamese <laughs> and it is uh by fam tian an and it's inside the yellow cocoon shell um, he's a Vietnamese writer and director. Um, he adapted a short film of his first. Um, and I think he got a five-minute standing ovation for it. It was incredibly lauded. It was, uh, I got a, um, the first, I think, the prize for best first film. So this is considered his feature um, debut. And it's a psychological adventure revolving around a man trying to bring his sister-in-law's dead body back to their hometown before he attempts Uh. to find his long-lost brother. Um, That's a lot. That's a lot of things happening at once, my dude. Maybe tackle just one. But, I mean, like the character, not the director. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So I'm also going to drop a little link in here while you click on that. And you can take a look at him. He has long hair, which is good for him. Um, But uh, so anyway, do we want this? Yes, let's colonize the French back. Hit back. <laughs> Empire strikes back. Not Empire strikes back. The the, the the colonized strike back. Let's take your awards. Yeah. Let's let's have a rebellion. <laughs> um I definitely want this. I'm excited because like, you know, you know every year at Cannes, you have the one Asian auteur Oscar contender, right? And the past few years have all been Korean filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And I'm really really excited to see what 
the um the vietnamese auteur filmmakers are making because you know korean films are all about you know the effects of modernity on and western imperialism on like class and how it isolates people um curious to see what comes out of like the vietnamese lens right yeah i you know there was a stat out recently when it came to america um that there are actually more vietnamese people than korean people um here in america and i was like oh you wouldn't know it you know like judging from the media output you know and who we see on screen and so i was like i was surprised at that stat now of course we're talking about a vietnamese director here but i but because of the disparity in um in uh economics you know vietnam hasn't had as robust a an entertainment you know um output when it comes to what we see in the rest of the world. So yeah, it's the same. I don't know what the stories are that don't deal with Vietnam War. I don't know what the stories are now. I've, I've been, you know, now that I have Vicky, I was like, should I check out some of these Vietnamese shows on there or are they going to be not quite there yet? Because there is, of course, you know, um, the uh, how much they are connected with the world. My taste, of course, is very Western. So the, you know, Korea and Japan have have created well and maybe China have created so much of the stuff that I watch you know when it comes to Asian content so what is Vietnamese and like <laughs> I, I don't know yet um, yeah and it feels like at least with Korean media because they're so western adjacent it's there's a lot more touch points whereas like I feel like Films from, and it sounds like from your description of the two films, like themes of homecoming, finding home, themes of like mm-hmm. of colonization and like foreign powers. Like those themes do make sense coming from like a Vietnamese voice, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I forgot to mention in the first one, even though it's about French people, it's set during 1885. So we'll see if there was a, an input there. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, that's when yeah. they were literally yeah. colonized. Like yeah. that's literally when they were when Vietnam was a French colony, right? Right, but it's set in France. That's what I'm saying is oh. it's starring French people. So I don't know how much we will get the Vietnamese influence besides the director. However, because the director is Vietnamese, <laughs> I am curious if there is something. So we'll it's see. It's got to be there. I There's am, no way they would have, do a French film without I mean, including I have, that, right? <laughs> I have not read this novel, so I think I might end up checking it out to see if that content is in there. Yeah. I'm excited because I'm sure, you know, come award season, like much like um, what was last year's decision to leave? Yeah. Um, oh, hopefully those films will come to to the US and we can we can watch it. Yeah. Together. Like I'm, I'm very curious to see which studios get these films, because that also helps determine um, their you know fate here. I think yeah. if it's an A24 film, I'll be very happy. But, you know, there's also, of course, like Focus Films does great stuff, too. And some other Sony Pictures classics and stuff. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Our last story for APAM 2023. Um, Ming-Na Wen is getting her Hollywood Walk of Fame star. Ooh. Do we want this? Uh, yeah, about fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. When it comes to the Hollywood Walk of Fame... um the actor or their team um, puts in the request and they pay for it. Um, yes. But so it's not purely based on talent, but they do have to get, I think, approved. Um, yes. And yeah, but I mean, also, it's pay to yeah. play, which is like yeah. not a secret, but also like. But also, hey, name ja- the game. <laughs> James Hong got his, right? So I'm, I, right? Didn't he recently? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We should just yes. start a fun, just to fun, not us, but someone should start a fun just to get all of our classic Asian stars onto that street. Yeah, not us. Yeah. We don't have enough sponsors for that <laughs> um, yet. <laughs> it's it's $15,000 and you have to commit to paying for upkeep of your star. So it's actually kind of a pain in the ass. And like none of these none of these people are paying for their own star. Their studios are paying for it as part of a PR campaign. Um, you know, like do we know I mean maybe sorry, where it is? Let's see. Oh, I guess that makes how prime is the location? Hold on. Well, there aren't that many prime locations left. So it's Well, I mean now they're like, like I don't know if you've been to Hollywood Boulevard, but there's like they're like doubling up the rows now. <laughs> like there's more than one star per like like there's like the stars are like side by side now next to each other. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. They'll so make room for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, it looks like some good people are going to be speaking. Yeah. There's, there's also a really good um, 
episode of this po- on a on a podcast if you want to listen to it. <laughs> oh, I mean, I hope that the studio is paying for. I hope that Disney is paying for Mina's. Um, oh yeah, they better be. because she is like. She's the she did ultimate the Disney, Disney perfecter, right? Yeah, she's the ultimate Disney, Disney. princess in the mm-hmm. Star War. She has the Disney hat trick in a Marvel. Yeah. yeah. And you know you gotta you gotta roll it out for Asian American API Heritage Month, right? Which is what they yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job on. Them. I cannot find the location. Maybe they haven't figured it out yet. If you want to be really on the nose, it should just be in front of the Chinese theater. Yeah, I, I thought about that too. <laughs> yeah, that that's a prime spot yeah. though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's oh. next Tuesday, so we'll find out soon enough. Yeah. Well, oh, wait. congratulations to me. No, it it's happened tomorrow. today. It happened today. Oh, it's too low. Today is Tuesday. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's 16. Hold on. I found the address. I'm Googling it right now. 6840. Oh, it is. Guys, it is right in front of. It is right in front of the Chinese theater. Got him. Or across we're, the street. We're so oh, smart. That's, so, that's so good. That is a prime location. It is outside, I think, the Jimmy Kimmel oh. Theater, which just makes sense. That's Disney owned, like right next to the Al Capitan. Oh, good, so, good, good, good. I'll check yeah, it out. You know what? Go for her. That is a prime location. Next time you're at a premiere or a screening there, just go check it out. That yeah. happens often. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yay. And with that, I guess I'll do it for this month. Do we want this? Um, thanks for joining us. Um, Jess Han, if people want to find out more of your thoughts, where can they go? My trash takes are on Twitter at Just You Tweets. And I'm at Anonymous uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and recently Blue Sky. Um, I have no followers. So, you know, I guess if you have an invitation, you can find me there. I am at Marvin Yue on Twitter and I guess Instagram if you want. If you're down for like food picks and stuff, yeah. um, you can find our show at Good Pop Club. We are a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Uh, check out our fellow Asian American hosted podcast by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. And yeah, that's a wrap for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month 2023. Congratulations. We made it through, everyone. Woo! Till next year. <laughs> yes. I'm going to take off my mask. Well, we'll be back next week with another good pop. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Life gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.